Hi everyone, this is Working Title, the podcast where we, four intrepid, handsome, intelligent, and entirely fraudulent reviewers, watch and review IMDb's top 250 English language movies as of November 2019, going from bottom to top. So watch along with us, and... Say hello to my little film. Alright. Let me refresh on our agenda, because I forgot how this whole thing works. Okay, well, you know, here at 9pm, my time. uh, Welcome back to Working Title, everyone. Of course, the podcast where we rank the top 250 English language movies as rated by the good people of IMBD. This week, we're watching Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Uh, 1966 movie uh, in black and white, of course. I'm sure we'll hear about that a bit later. And interestingly, another one of our series of movies based on plays. This joins uh, films like Sleuth, Rope, and um, are there any others that we saw? Oh, Fiddler on the Roof, of course, but that's that's a musical. That's a little different. Pretty big series of movies based on plays. I have a suspicion that this one is going to draw a lot of comparisons with Sleuth, Though, we'll see how this goes. Um, So, uh, yeah, a little bit more about it. Uh, It stars Elizabeth Taylor, who, you know, absolute star at the time. Richard Burton, kind of a Shakespearean actor. And George uh, Segal, Segal, and Sandy Dennis. So only four people in kind of the the set and um, situations that you'd kind of expect from an adaptation from a play. Um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get into a lot of this, uh, in a minute, but before we do that, we're going to introduce ourselves, the reviewers here in the studio. My name's Jack, and if I could fix one movie by patching over one, or sorry, if I could totally unravel one movie by patching over one plot hole, I'm going to go with what must be a classic by patching over a literal hole in the exhaust port of the first death star <laughs> what i was gonna say that one i'm glad i or a glaring absence um that took 30 years and several movies to retcon and explain you just make it smaller than a womp rat and you'd be all right yeah well yeah i mean <laughs> smaller than you could bullseye in a t16 back home <laughs> like the space metric system is the womp rat <laughs> they're not much oh, bigger than two meters <laughs> oh it's 1.7 meters it's a little smaller than a womp rat <laughs> god damn it three quarter womp rat <laughs> who's next alright I'll do I'll actually I'll do one better I, I also went with Star Wars but I went to the beginning of Star Wars <laughs> There's no way an intergalactic senator would ever hook up with a Jedi Padawan. That's the whole movie right there. We wouldn't have seen any of this. You mean one that she's like 20 years his senior? Exactly. (laughs) The birth never happened. Hey, hey, we just watched a movie where a woman 20 years senior tries to hook up with a guy, so... I I mean, yeah. Darth Vader could have been born from this. (laughs) But they drank too much. It's interesting um, that we all went with Star Wars. Yeah, Star Wars so far. I'm going to go uh, with Jurassic Park. Instead of with this convoluted plot to make them like frogs, why don't you just spay and neuter them? 
like every other pet. <laughs> Spay and neuter your dinos. <laughs> I feel like that's a lot easier than altering DNA. Just a little snip snip when they're born. There's enough <laughs> goddamn dinosaurs in shelters. <laughs> Adopt. Bob Parker could have fixed Jurassic World. <laughs> and don't buy your dinosaurs from backyard breeders. I can't wait for the Sarah McLaughlin commercial of that one. Do you think singing in the arms of an angel means anything to a T-Rex? <laughs> All right. Um, so I picked not one movie, but a genre or series of movies. Mm. Uh, and that is any movie with some kind of portal. And uh, this isn't mine, but uh, this is an astute observation from our mutual friend, David. And for some reason, we were watching Terra Nova. And there's a scene when people, bad people are coming through a portal... And on the other side, the good people are in, like, defensive positions with, like, guns pointed at this portal. And he said, why don't they just dig a hole in front of it? <laughs> so that solves your stargates, you know? <laughs> just just put it right up against a wall. <laughs> just dig a big hole. You killed Shane as he works through the ramifications of this. <laughs> I literally think of every portal movie now where they just fall through a hole when they come out of the portal. <laughs> oh, and I'm June, by the way. Thanks, June. And I'm Mike. Hi, June. <laughs> so yeah, we've uh, we've talked a bit about what this movie is. Um, you know, again, based on a play, the two leading uh, actor or actor and actress are definitely stars of their time. Um, and, you know, Elizabeth Taylor, of course, kind of transcends era. Uh, she's still famous to some degree. Um, yeah, so we can definitely uh, dive into this and start discussing what happens in this movie. But before we do, June, you have something for us? Yeah, I have a series of similes uh, throughout this movie. Uh, they all begin with watching this movie. So, watching this movie is like being an Uber driver picking people up at the culmination of a frat party. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, I like it. Yeah, I agree, Can but I, I, I... Is that is that what the life of an Uber driver would be like, wouldn't it? Like, every night you see domestic violence at least five times before you get home. And just drunk assholes. <laughs> um, yeah, so what happens in this movie, Mike? Uh, the movie starts with George and Martha, who are a, uh, they're a married couple. George is a associate professor of history at the, uh, at this university that they work at. And Martha is the daughter of the, uh, the president of the university itself. Um, they're a little bit older couple, I think around in their forties and they're coming home from a, um, a staff party, I believe, or a faculty party. And on their way home, um, we it just shows them walking across the open field of their university. When they get home, they start to show their true colors toward each other. They're definitely, um, I guess, very, I don't know, dangerously emotional in their responses to each other, kind of uh, mean and, and snippety and kind of jabbing at each other. Uh, but then, strangely enough, playfulness comes out in between all of their, um, their rhetoric. Uh, Turns out that Martha had invited a young couple who, one of them is also a professor at the university, is a new professor there, to come over for drinks. Uh, keep in mind, this is around 2 a.m. in the morning at this point, so it's pretty early. And uh, George is kind of against it, but Martha being 
more of a free-spirited person wants to continue to drink and pushes George to let these this young couple come over where they argue in front of them and uh, they start to have their own kind of feuds in front of uh, Nick and Honey, who are the two young couple who come over. Um, they're newly married and just really some strange kind of mind games ensue. Like, I wouldn't even call them mind games. It's more of like George and Martha have issues and they're not afraid to show their issues in front of guests. And Nick and Honey um, trying to be polite and trying to get in good terms with George and Martha because Martha is the daughter of the the uh, president of the university, uh, agree to stay. Uh, throughout this whole time, they keep drinking mass amounts of hard alcohol and the uh, I guess the strangeness gets stronger and stronger throughout the night where Martha starts to... to reveal secrets of George that George doesn't want to talk about but at the same time George is definitely um, insulting Martha at all you know at all points throughout their whole conversation and Nick and Honey are just awkwardly watching and trying to be polite um, and continuing to drink. Uh, Honey is a lightweight and she ends up getting to the point where she's very drunk very quickly and um, Martha is obviously hitting on Nick who is the younger guy with blonde hair. George has a problem with blonde haired guys. And uh, after, uh, I guess it's only about 30 minutes of them drinking in the living room, uh, Martha pushes George too far where he breaks a bottle and starts to dance with Honey, who becomes sick and runs to the bathroom. Um, Soon after they recover, George says that he's going to drive them home and gets them all into the car where he drunkenly drives them through town. I think that's a good spot for the first section. Yeah. Um, before we offer yeah, commentary, June. Watching this movie is like getting a master's degree in psychology, thinking you're going to change lives, only to be relegated to being a marriage counselor for socialites in Orange County. <laughs> did you did you write these, June? I did. So damn, that's how much this movie pissed me off. <laughs> in fact, as I watched one. this movie, I thought to myself, "What a dump! What a dump!" What a Warner Brothers dump. For those that haven't seen the movie, that is the opening scene. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor's character goes on a giant rant about uh, the the line, what a dump. And she's like, what movie is this from? It's from a movie. And she won't shut the fuck up about it. And what I will say is a bit of trivia is that what a dump line is in reference to some garbage Betty Davis movie. <laughs> and that scene made more sense when Betty Davis was supposed to be cast as Martha. Hmm. She wasn't supposed to be so cast a- as Martha. This was based on a play, and the line was in there in the play, and and she was mm-hmm. intended. She was the first uh, first choice for that act for the the role, but the line was not written for her specifically to say. If we know anything about Virginia Woolf, it's just a stream of consciousness. So okay, I, I want to make <laughs> this clear: Virginia Woolf did not write this. Well, I'll just throw my notes away then. <laughs> I'm gonna put my cards on the table here. I thought this was a pretty interesting movie. I don't think it's the best we've seen, but it's pretty far from the worst, and I think it's better than most. Um, as far as ranking, so we'll you know we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But I think this was pretty compelling, and I want to start out by saying that initially I found all of these characters stupendously annoying. I oh god yes absolutely hated Honey's voice and accent. It was driving me insane. Her mannerisms. Um, Barbara Taylor was infuriating as Martha. George, um, I think 
he had like Richard Taylor played him with this really great like Shakespearean gravitas, but he was a horrible character and a horrible person and like just incessantly passive aggressive. Um, okay, hold on. You said Barbara Taylor and then know, Richard sorry, Taylor. So, uh, <laughs> God, what am I saying? Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Um, it's because my notes are wrong. Um, but as I watched this movie, um, I came to appreciate that more as good acting rather than just frustrating uh, acting or characterization. Yeah. I, they do a lot of monologues, especially Elizabeth Taylor, and she is very good. It's uh, I mean, you know, obviously Elizabeth Taylor's good, but she, the her monologues are excellent. But I will say that within the first five minutes, I knew she was a monster because she puts that chicken wing bone back into the fridge instead of the goddamn garbage, which <laughs> just made me want to throw something through. I Nothing drives me more than coming home and you find out that your drunk spouse or partner has put half-eaten food back into the fridge, but not even in a container. Well, I'm going to go uh, and into what you were talking about. Um, Jack, I agree that the acting in this was phenomenal. They were they were all very um, obviously terrible people from the get go. Uh, but it was very it wasn't like acting. It was almost too close to home the way that they talked to each other, George and Martha specifically. Um, they they've been together for over thirty years, and it is apparent that they had been together for that long. I would like to contrast this. I think you're right, Mike. I think. A lot of what this is is very uncomfortable. And in a sense, as much as uh, we shit on Annie Hall, um, it did portray relationships in a way that I think just about anybody can look at and relate to, right? That the the slightly neurotic nature of love and, uh, you know, weird people being together. I think a lot of people can relate to that. And I think this is like the dark reflection of that, where a lot of people can look at this relationship and relate to it in a lot of ways even if their you know relationship is the dumpster fire that this one is it's something that just as a human experience is intensely relatable and i think that makes it good yeah did anyone else think they were swingers (laughs) i i thought that was where it was going at first and then i wrote in my notes i went wait no they're witches but that never panned out either but Um. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of depth to that, too. I think some of the uh, parts I kind of hashed over a little bit quickly um, in the first section here was there's uh, a part where Martha leaves the room with Honey to go show her the house. And when Honey comes back, Honey mentions their son. And this infuriates George. And we don't know why, but for some reason throughout this entire movie, there's a lot of deception and a lot of lies kind of going on. At least it feels like something's being covered up or not being, you know, it's a half-truths coming out. Um, specifically with the fact that George mentions that, you know, the son being a blonde haired, blue eyed, um, kid is, is very upsetting to him. I think that's important to note, but, uh, let's jump back to June who I cut off earlier. All right. So, uh, based on my similes, uh, it's no secret that I was not a fan of this movie, but Jack, I will play your game. Uh, there were a lot of points that I was very appreciative of. Elizabeth Taylor being one of them. She was almost unrecognizable in this movie. Uh, like, this this is a woman, you know, regarded as one of the most beautiful actresses of the time, right? And to cast her as Martha, arguably one of the most shrill and unpalatable characters in all of cinema, 
normally I would say like that's a terrible casting choice, right? But she not only played the part extremely well, like she uh, she gained 30 pounds for the role. The hair and makeup contributed a lot as well. And I never thought I'd say this, but I can honestly say that the costume design legitimately enhanced the actors and the film as a whole. I, I agree with you. I barely recognized Elizabeth Taylor. I had to like do a double take. I was like, wait, that is her. Is it, is it weird that I thought she was actually good looking in this? <laughs> I mean, no, she's good looking, but I was like, wait, she played Cleopatra? Wait, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. And so, Shane, you can you can attest to this. Every time we watch the Oscars, <laughs> sorry, away from Mike's comment, but every time we watch the Oscars, right, like the the best costume design comes up and we're like, okay, whatever, that's a filler award, right? You don't put a lot of stock to it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, whatever, you picked out clothes, big deal. And uh, <laughs> I'd say most of the time, I don't I don't think I'm wrong, but out of all movies like this one was noticeably better because of it uh even even to go on uh george um like he was the visual representation of the word disheveled and i think that was largely due to his uh like costume yeah that's true and he got more disheveled throughout the night mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he got sweatier and sweatier well that goes into the mass amounts of alcohol they're drinking throughout this film these people are throwing back hard a from the start of the film to the end of the film, unrelentingly, like unrelenting on how much they are drinking. It's pretty impressive. And like, I felt, at first I felt bad for Nick and Honey when they showed up. I was like, Jesus Christ, what a party to walk into. Or like, they're just bickering. But then I was like, oh, they're swingers. But then doesn't, oh God, I'm streaming consciousness. Oh, Jesus. Okay, I'm losing my spot. Um, No, it's because Honey was saying that she brought up the point that she has to make her way through this world and has to kind of like, she was the one who walks up to people and meets them. So it's obvious that they're looking for some prowess. They're not going to just walk out on this party because they think Martha's the connection to the college. Right, because her dad's mm-hmm. the dean. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of an ongoing theme is that Martha's dad is pulling a lot of strings and making a lot of things happen. And people are sucking up to him, you know, via Martha. And then Martha sleeps with him. Not not in every case. <laughs> it's, it's implied. Yeah. I almost jumped out of my seat, though, with the gun thing, because I was like, holy shit, this movie's going to get started. Like, I thought he was just going to blow Martha away in front of everyone, and that was going to be what the movie is about. But then it was like some umbrella gun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was so ready for a murder in the first act and just be like, oh my god, did not see that coming. But they- That was done very well. I did not expect an umbrella gun. Because who has an umbrella gun? Still deadly at point blank range. (laughs) (laughs) I want to draw a parallel to Sleuth in that... Yeah, that's a good um, one. You even alluded to it. I don't know if intentionally or or otherwise, June, but uh, a lot of this movie centers around the games George and Martha play. And they, they articulate them as games, too. And they are absolutely terrible to each other. But sometimes it goes from terrible to each other to being on the same team against other people. And um, we'll get into this later, but uh, Martha defines the rules for these games and George will change what he's doing to respond. So it's like you, it's, it's not a direct you know comparison and parallel, but I think it's interesting in that uh, it's just like an interest common theme between those two movies. And there are a lot of unspoken games as well. 
Yeah, I think uh, their relationship has evolved to such a point where they're playing a game without really knowing it. It's just kind of automatic at this point. They do explicitly call it out at times, but I think... Uh, yes. Um, yeah, I think it's just interesting, and there'll be more to say about that later. Yeah, I I kind of have a problem with drawing the two together. They are very similar, and I think that's a lot of their stage play-ness, like the dialogue and stuff. But the problem is the sleuth... You can keep track of where you are in the conversation. You understand the banter. You understand where they're at. It's like you can follow along. This felt like who's on first like the entire time where I'm like, wait, okay. They were just everywhere and it made it so exhausting. Now it kind of like evens out later and you can understand more. But in the beginning, their banter is so fast and back and forth and everywhere that you're you're just lost. You're just staring at people yelling almost like it's I I see what you're saying, but I found uh the dialogue in this to be super sharp at times. Um uh, sharp is a way to put it. The uh <laughs> So uh, okay, so I'm glad you brought that up, Shane. Like I I don't quite understand the genesis of this movie. Did the studio heads get together and be like you know what audiences want to see? Two straight hours of nonstop bickering. <laughs> it was just so taxing. It really was. I felt exhausted. I literally had to put my own intermission in this movie because I was like, I can't. I just cannot listen to these two yell at each other any longer. I started smoking again during this movie. <laughs> <laughs> there goes fucking two years of sobriety. So I have some notes in the dialogue, but I think they'll, they'll be best to bring up a bit later in the movie. Um... Do we have anything else we want to cover in this section, or do we want to... I would... I'd like to bring up the interaction between... The the first interaction between Nick and George. So, George is talking to Martha, and he goes, Wait, the people that come over, is the husband good-looking? Is he, you know, fit or something like that? And she's like, Yes, he is. And you can tell... I was like, Oh, so Martha's done this before? So he's just... He's uneasy with any good-looking guy coming over? But then their first interaction, Nick is, like, obviously there to fuck Martha. Like, he doesn't hide it at all with his interaction with George. And, like, George is kind of, like, doing this whole big dick thing to him. But Nick, for being a master, doesn't he have a master's in biology? He's a professor of biology. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, he's a lot more intelligent than his character acts. Like, I don't care how young you are. If you're a professor of biology, you probably can talk better than, than Nick does. When you drink know an entire bottle ex- of... No, you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if it was as explicit as you you made it sound, No, I don't Shane, think so. I picked it up like... I, I feel like it was laid on heavy. Because like, as soon as they all leave the room, he ignores George almost like... The way Martha talks with him and everything, you're like, oh, Jesus. Well, Martha is certainly flirting with him. I don't think Nick showed up with that intent. I don't think they wanted to show up. I think they, you know, they kind of entered the house and were kind of hesitant to stay. Like, okay, these guys are weird. We should go. Yeah, I, I really thought they were swingers for like the first half of this movie. And then I was like, oh, once George started getting jealous, I was like, oh, I guess, I guess not. And there goes that thought. Before you bring it up again ten more times, Shane, they are not swingers. They are not swingers. Or witches. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's still to be determined. 
<laughs> Before we move on, I got I got one more thing about the beginning. Um, once again, not being too much of a fan of this movie, I relegated myself to picking out filming techniques that I liked. Um, so it was well executed uh, cinematographically. Um, I'm a huge fan of like the medium shot, slow zoom to a close up during like a serious monologue, which there was a lot of. And uh, there was a particular shot in the beginning when Martha, Nick, and Honey are sitting together. And uh, Martha's on one of her rants. And instead of like kind of adjusting the lens focus or whatever to show the background characters, Martha's straight up like half out of the frame. And it, it draws attention to Nick's reaction to her rambling. And then on top of that, like the in a relatively small set, if you will, the, the tracking and panning shots made the scenes seem a lot more fluid and maybe even chaotic at times. So so before we hop into Act 2, do you have another simile for us, June? Yes. Uh, watching this movie is like the day after an indoor rock concert when your ears won't stop ringing and everything hurts. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike, what happens in Act 2? So after they uh, get into the car and start to drive them home... Um, Honey starts demanding that they go dancing. And this is all while Martha is, again, berating George on another secret of his past. And George is continually to get more and more upset and more angry. Um, so as they're driving along, they pass a bar where Honey starts to yell that she wants to dance. And Martha starts to tell George that they should stop. And so George pulls over the side of the road and they go into this dive bar where it's just the four of them alone. Um, and they have some more drinks and they listen to some music and they have uh, uh, some dancing going on that turns into Martha dancing with Nick specifically. And I think it's pretty on the nose now since, you know, part one, we really couldn't really tell what was going on. But now we really know that Martha is definitely trying to um, flirt with Nick and Nick is definitely not caring about his wife anymore. Uh, I think this has a little bit to do with some of the story at the very beginning of part one. Well, the second way through the part one is when um, George and Nick are outside talking and it becomes apparent that Nick married Honey for her money. That comes apparent in this next scene where Honey is is almost blackout drunk and Martha begins to tell everyone a secret about George and his past and a novel that he wrote that was turned down by Martha's father when he wanted to get it published and it was about him growing up and his past and Martha reveals that he was um, actually one of the characters from the story that he told to Nick in the first part of this movie that was a kid who shot his parents with a shotgun. Nick gets into a tussle with George and George tries to choke Martha and Nick and Honey pull them apart and uh, George then starts to go after Nick and tell Honey that Nick only married her for his her money and also the fact that Nick revealed that they had had a uh, a fake pregnancy that Honey had made up for them to get married or maybe it was a miscarriage I wasn't too sure um, but they leave the bar and George and Martha go out to the car and this is where George and Martha have their final kind of confrontation where Martha says that she's she's done with this and. George has changed and tonight's the night that she's going to snap and that she's going to go to war with him. And they both agree that they're about to go to war with each other. Uh, Martha jumps in the car, speeds off down the road, picks up 
Nick and Honey, who are walking down the road, and takes them back to the house and leaves George on the side of the road. Uh, by the time George gets back to the house, he finds the car uh, just pulled over onto the, you know, into the middle of the lawn, and in the back seat is Honey, who is passed out. And in the window above, he can see um, silhouettes of Nick and Martha, who are apparently um, doing the nasty. Yeah, so George goes into the house and, and it's deadlocked or dead. The deadbolt is on, so he kicks in the door and finds Martha's shirt on the stairs, where he uh, he has a breakdown and he leaves the house sobbing. Um, Honey wakes up, goes and finds George sitting on the porch sobbing, and uh, George says that. You know, he starts yelling at Honey about, like, don't you know what's going on here? And and Honey, just being blackout drunk, uh, says, no, she hears the bell. Somebody's at the door. And I guess that inspires George to come up with this idea to get back at Martha by telling her that their son, who was discussed earlier in the film, uh, is is dead. And uh, that's what we want from there. Yeah, so um, do we need another uh, soliloquy or not soliloquy simile here, June? Or do you want to save him? Uh, sure. I'll, I'll say it here. Uh, watching this movie is like knocking over every shelf in the pots and pans section of Bed Bath and Beyond. <laughs> so we, uh, this technically happened in in Act One, but uh, we mentioned this recap, and this is where I want to talk about where the dialogue it was really sharp and really clever. Um, you know, they they went at each other's throats the entire movie, and at times it was like a a four-way brawl against each other. But the places I thought it was really compelling were some of the more subtle isn't the right word, but some of the more underhanded conversations between, for example, um, George and Nick. Nick, by the way, is never called by his name in this entire movie. Um, The scene where they were outside together talking was really interesting. Um, So I think one thing I want to highlight, there are two things I want to highlight, but the first one is there were interesting uh, mirrors and bookends of lines where there was kind of this recurring thing where in their discussion, Nick and George would do this, my wife, your wife bit. I don't know if you remember that, where someone would say something about, you know, the other person's wife uh, or, you know, ambiguously. And one would say my wife and the other would say, no, my wife. I think it was interesting and they, they played it at interesting moments. The other thing that I thought was really interesting is how quickly these conversations could pivot from things said in jest to accusations or serious. And I always think that's like a really interesting dialogue thing because it's difficult both to write and to act. The example here is where George is giving the recommendation to Nick that to get to the top, he needs to pretty much sleep his way to the top by, you know, having sex with the wives of whoever he needs to. And George says, or Nick says to George, kind of jokingly, I'm starting to think you're serious. And George all of a sudden turns very serious and says, no, you think you're serious. And it scares the hell out of you. It's really interesting how quickly it pivots. We see a lot of it in this movie, but it also is kind of the seed of, uh nick's plans later in the movie i will uh, agree and disagree with that um i think in this section of the scene i agree it's uh it's kind of on the fence of whether it's you know serious or in jest like you said uh but i think 
it becomes clear in the next section that almost every bit of dialogue had some kind of underhanded truth, if you will, to it. Yeah, I think it's... But I, I, w- I would agree that we, we don't really see that until it's kind of on the nose in the next uh, section, which we'll get into. Yeah, I don't think we're disagreeing here. I think I think so much of this dialogue is flirting uh, with this idea of being part of a game and being real, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really interesting. The lines between these these games and reality are blurred. Yeah, I don't know. I, the problem I have with the games is they they talk and set all these things up that I feel like they don't pay off in the end. We as the audience just go, the fuck was the point of that? So he tells the story about uh, Bergen, right? And everyone laughing at him in a bar, which I don't know why he was so upset about being laughed at in a bar. It sounds like he was the life of the party. But he talks about, more importantly, his parents that both were killed. He shot his... So during that part where he's telling the story about the Bergen, he's talking about a kid he knew in his town growing up that mispronounced Bourbon. And he also referred to that same kid as the one who accidentally murdered his parents. But we find out in the next part where they're at the bar where uh, Martha starts to accuse Georges of writing his book that the kid actually was George. And George actually changed that story originally. And you can even hear Nick in the background being like, hey, wait a minute. Like, he's catching on to the whole thing. Yeah, because Nick's always lost. Without knowing the end of this movie, this part is very confusing. Uh, In fact, the first three quarters of the movie is, is very confusing. But at the end... All of this kind of makes more sense that why it's so weird and why there's so much convolution and there's kind of lies or at least there's half truths going on through the whole thing. Like, does it make sense? Because so, I'm still confused. Like, yeah, I, I am too, but it, it makes a little bit more sense. Well, yeah, because you expect a payoff. So George starts out by telling the story about a kid he knew who killed both his parents and to this day is in a mental institution. Um, it's not so we are told by Martha that it was actually George who did this, but it's not, she's not a reliable narrator, not, not by a long shot. Right. I, I think, um, you know, there's plenty of reason to suspect that that is not a true statement. She's also doing it as a way to mock his book. So it kind of feeds into their back and forth. But I think what's interesting is this is part of this blurring between what's part of a game and what is real both of these characters are constantly lying. And I think one place where this does pay off is this this whole altercation in the roadhouse is Martha making fun of George for writing such a stupid plot to a book, right? Like, who would believe that that happened? This person kills both their parents and walks away free, you know, whatever, right? And he turns it around by making up a book uh, a new novel, his second novel, with the true story, which is the story of um, Nick and Honey, which upsets them. That's kind of the arc of that. I think, uh, I don't know if we quite covered it, but it becomes important later and sets the stage to answer some of these questions, I think. Uh, one of the key conflicts between the two is at the very beginning, um martha and honey go upstairs and honey comes down and is like where's your son yeah or whatever um and that kind of sends george on a spiral like you you know you told her about our son so more to follow on that but i think that will kind of help uh clear up 
all of the stories, if you will, later. Kind of. But, like, see, Act 2 has some depth, and you think something's going to happen because it's based in reality in a way. Like, Martha is literally dancing with Nick. You're like, okay, this, this is real. Like, Honey is physically reacting to the story. You're assuming that Nick and Honey aren't playing a game, so their stories are real. So there's some some real life stakes at hand. Honey's so drunk, she doesn't realize it's real though. It, it's you have to have some payoff or we go, the fuck was this? Just a bunch of made up stories back and forth? No, 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 no. So here, I, I'm I'm telling you that I will clear it up for you based on that setup, Shane. So what okay. I will say, <laughs> just within the confines of Act Two, is by my reading of this movie both Nick and Honey are there and are genuinely are generally genuine. They are kind of the the foil and counterpoint and placed there as a to illustrate or to highlight what's going on between George and Martha. The things to think about here are is Martha like actually interested in Nick or is this just part of her game with George? Yeah. Right. I love I love Honey as a character. She's amazing. When <laughs> she's sitting there and and George is strangling Martha and she's just yelling violence, like cheering violence. In the <laughs> that, bar. that was so well acted. <laughs> I, I I would argue that she did a better job than Elizabeth Taylor. She did an excellent job, and I hated she her character just, for it. She's just blackout drunk the entire movie. <laughs> and, and I would argue it's pretty hard to like skillfully act a you know, pissed drunk person, right? Yeah. Right. But uh, George, George's character at the beginning of this started out as this like very articulate, kind of intelligent guy. And by the end of it, he was in more ways than one, Hannibal Lecter. He even calls her angel boobs, I think. Yeah. <laughs> angel boobs and what was the other one he said? His angel boobs and uh, monkey nipples. <laughs> monkey nipples. <laughs> I feel like those are two different things. If we want to, is there anything else we want to say about Act 2? I think a lot of our discussion will be illuminated if we go on to Act 3. Yeah. The last thing that I want to say about Act 2 is, where are the cops in this town? It's, it's, <laughs> it's 1966, dude. Driving drunk, bar fights, domestic violence. I would say, uh, last thing for this uh, section, it's kind of where we see George hit rock bottom slash start to kind of develop his character arc and this is the point going back to costume design where i realized that a shirt and tie and cardigan is the symbol of being in the back nine of life <laughs> just like I'm glad you said that i was about to actually buy that uh the dude from big lebowski did not wear a tie I guess yeah. i'll just change what i'm wearing <laughs> thought i looked snazzy uh june do you want to hit us with another metaphor here Yes, watching this movie is like listening to reverse ASMR. <laughs> listening to nice. Honey. So, Mike, what happens in Act 3? The final act, we just barely saw George leave with his new plan to get back at Martha by coming up with a story that their son is dead. We uh, go into the house now with Martha and Nick, who are now finished doing what they were doing, and Martha is now treating Nick just as she treats George. Um making fun of him, snapping at him, saying that he wasn't able to perform, calling him a houseboy. And uh, Nick is now kind of seeing what Martha's all about and 
I don't know, I guess seeing what George is all about. But the most important part about this interaction is when Martha starts to talk about the one man that she's she's loved in her life, and she says that it's George. And Nick's like, are you serious? Like, we just barely, like, after the way I've seen you guys act tonight, what we just barely did, it's George. And Martha's like, yeah, George has always been this guy for, for her. Um, so at this point there's a knock on the door and Martha demands that Nick goes and opens it just like she was doing to George at the beginning and uh, he does he goes over and he opens the door and it's George and he has a bunch of uh, dragon snaps I think they're called flowers snapdragons and And he comes in with all of these flowers and it's this is when it gets real bizarre where Martha and George start like they're, they're singing with each other and they're talking like nothing happened and they're like giving um, Nick a bunch of crap and calling him a houseboy. Um, but then it turns serious again, where then Martha starts to say that they, they actually did have sex. And George goes and says, we're going to play one more game and uh, gets Honey out of the bathroom, who is passed out again with a bottle of, of, of liquor. And they go into the living room where the final game is... I don't remember what their game was. I guess one of you will have to explain it, but it ends up getting to the point where George releases his plan of telling Martha that their son is dead and uh, Martha has this breakdown and Honey being this blackout drunk person confirms it because she just confirms anything George says is and uh, the story is that there was a, uh, a telegram that showed up and Martha keeps saying no you can't do this you can't choose this happens you can't make this happen which is sounding strange to Nick and Nick starts to catch on that something's weird is happening and when George says that she asks George where the uh, the telegram is. He says he ate it. And Honey confirms it as well. And Nick says, oh, I understand now. And he gets up and, he's, and he says, I understand now. And uh, at the very end, the, the Honey and, and Nick, they, they leave. Because of Dawn. Uh, sorry, it's Dawn. So they leave. And uh, George and Martha are sitting in their living room. Kind of, I, I don't know, like acting like the game's over. And they uh, go to bed. So welcome to the part of working title where we explain the movie to Shane. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know what the fuck happened. <laughs> I, I'm so confused. This whole thing ended where I I, I don't fucking so, know. Shane, do you want to hit us with a simile before we we really dig into this? I don't got a simile. June, do you want to hit us with a simile before we dig into this? <laughs> I think it's my last one. And all of these just to preface that it really drives home how annoying the fucking dialogue was. Like, watching this movie is like walking through that seedy part of town, listening intently to every homeless crackhead talking nonsense to himself. (laughs) I like that one. So, the missing piece there is, what did Nick figure out? Can Can we just do a quick round the room of... Does this make sense so far? Yes or no? Nick or George? W- what did Nick say he figured out? Like, do we... Sure, I'd like to speculate. Uh, speculate. I thought we were going around the room. I was waiting for my I turn. I mean, is it um, just, just yes or no? Do you do you have a, a good concept of what Nick figured out? You can't jump into the middle of the room and then say, I thought we were going around the room. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, do you follow this? <laughs> I think I do. Shane, do you follow this? Fuck no. June, do you follow this? I don't exactly understand the question. Do you, do you, <laughs> well, what we left out of the recap was what Nick understood about their son. 
We'll put that down as a, a no answer. Their son. George and Martha's son? Martha's son, yeah. yeah. George and Martha's son. Yeah, yeah, I got a grasp of that. Okay. Mike, do you want to hit us with your your understanding of that? Yeah, I'll take a whack at it. Um, I think, I don't know, this is what I took away from it, that George and Martha had attempted to have kids, but they weren't able to, and that had been kind of a, a, a thorn in their relationship. And this is more about their, I, I guess, coping with it in a weird kind of mental way where they, George being this novelist and the stories that he had written and the lies that they were telling and how things are an illusion and things are real but other things aren't but to them everything can be real where everything can be not be real at the same time that this is their kind of game of life is to have this weird kind of stories that aren't really real but they are real to them and they're kind of acting out all of their own i don't know like that's that's what i got from it and if you guys know more than that let me know yes so when we kind of talk about games, their son is kind of the ultimate game between the two of them. And you're exactly right. Like they, they wanted to have kids, but they couldn't. So somewhere along the way, this idea of a fictitious son started. And it was originally intended to be a game played between themselves. Which is why he was so angry at the beginning when Martha told Honey about the son. That was their game, right. no, not no anybody else's. And it's kind of, I wouldn't say embarrassing, but it's it's not something that you would want to advertise. Like, hey, we can't have kids, and it's kind of shitty. Yeah. So it, so okay. So going off of so I thought I do, but now I really do. So the fact that George came up with the grand plan to get back at Martha was to tell Honey that the son is dead made that the game just go over the top for Martha. Not necessarily. So, um. George brings that story about, you know, he got a telegram or whatever that their son has been killed, right? And Martha's like, you know, don't kill our son. And I think the idea is that this was between George and Martha, and by bringing other people into their secret slash story, she has essentially killed their son. Makes sense. So I read it as she broke the rules, and in retaliation, he declared their son dead and i kind of viewed it as in a parallel to sleuth like the final reversal of the games god damn these people are fucked up well and there's there's even more to it right i think part of what drove george's decision to quote kill their son uh goes through honey's uh storyline so this is uh this happens i think back in the last uh section but when she kind of wakes up from being in the backseat, um, she's just kind of drunkenly saying a bunch of shit. But I think this is where he re- George realizes that, uh, sorry, Honey and Nick's child, or lack thereof, was always cast aside as a hysterical pregnancy. Um, like she, you know, she had symptoms of a pregnancy, but it actually wasn't real, right? But then through Honey kind of drunkenly saying whatever she wants to, George realizes that she was pregnant and unbeknownst to Nick had an abortion. Mm -hmm. And so that feeds that dynamic of like, okay, Martha and I can't have kids, but like she's over here aborting babies. Um, That breeds a little bit of bitterness. And yeah. I think it definitely serves as the inspiration for killing their son. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's complicated, but I think, you know, and he didn't do this 
because uh, Martha mentioned their son to him, but I think he viewed Martha mentioning their son as putting this on the table for them or on the table as a, a retaliation. I think uh, I think I get the bitterness too. I I didn't notice that June. That's a, that was a good uh, you know little catch there. But he he does call the honey in the bathroom with a pig call right after that. He's like, let's let's go wake up, honey. Sweet. <laughs> I laughed my ass off when he did that, but I also thought of deliverance, so I stopped laughing. But Jesus, God damn it! <laughs> In the end, this movie is just really about family. I guess that's all I'm taking from it. <laughs> A lot of family movies on this list. <laughs> this movie was just so exhausting to watch. Like I, I kind of got all these beats a little bit. But it was so convoluted in its presentation that, which I guess is the point, but I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't feel like it was convoluted. I just think uh, it was it was like many plays or films based on plays. It was in a format where you had to pay attention. Yeah. Well, now, Martha will... says it. She's... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that Martha says it. She says uh, she's like when she's going on her uh, one of her rants, there's multiple rants but one of her rants she says that this is truth or illusion like that was that martha who said that line this truth or illusion it was either martha or george they both kind of talked I, about yeah, it together. i think they both say it at some point but yeah so yeah convoluted i i think uh i agree that this film was kind of unbearable but it wasn't because of the dialogue uh i think the dialogue was solid it was just that everybody was fucking screaming the whole time yeah and I'll kind of give the benefit of the doubt that, you know, it might have been more bearable if it wasn't for, like, the lo-fi audio. Uh, yeah, I think that was what was taxing about it. And it kind of overshadowed the underlying solid plot slash dialogue for me. You know, I think I, I, you know, we mentioned this before, but I felt a similar way in the beginning. But I, I feel like I acclimated or something and just adjusted to it. And I yeah, feel... it's because you lost your hearing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just watched it on mute with subtitles. Um, <laughs> it was a very different movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I watched the 2007 version of Who's Afraid of Virginia. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I will say is, like, I, I get what you're saying, but also the acting is so excellent, right? And it's excellent it to a degree where it's frustrating, but I feel like that comes to the credit of the movie where you know uh the actress who played honey sandy dennis honey was an infuriating character to listen to like personally i i hate being around and like talking to people who are just plastered but she played it so compellingly that it was a credit to the movie similarly elizabeth taylor was just an intensely dislikable character but it really like this movie wouldn't have been good if anyone was likable yeah agreed yeah maybe i just didn't want to listen to this movie and so i just wasn't picking up on a lot because i was just zoning out it was like being at my grandparents house too close to home if if your grandparents hate each other (laughs) yeah it's not as intelligible as their conversations but yeah no it's it's not a bad film no, no, I don't think I don't think I don't think Jack is saying it was a good film. I think he's saying it was good acting. There's a difference. I'm saying it's a good film. Oh well, fuck you. Oh well, fuck you. Yeah. Hey, well, hey, fuck, wait, you. Wait, wait. fuck you. <laughs> Truth or illusion? 
All I'm saying is I want to make the points to give this film a fair shake. You don't have to like it, but... Mm. I will bring up uh, something I've noticed now as part of these stage plays we've seen. I've noticed that when something is based off a play, you can almost spot it immediately by how everything is set up. Just from the first monologue to the one set or, you know, maybe like three sets. Now, that's not like a detriment, but I'm noticing this. It's like I can spot a play-based movie within 15 seconds of the screen. Everything always like starts off at, I don't know, June could probably put it into more technical terms, but... Well, I think that's a product of it being an older movie. I This is one of the few films based on a play that I did not instantly... I mean, like, I wouldn't attribute it to paying homage to the stage, right? There was outdoor stage, and again, the, the tracking shots with the camera, it, it kind of expanded the space, um, so... Yeah, it could just be limitations yeah. of film at the time. Well, all right, like... Going on with like how this movie does have some like good sides to it, um, the fact that it was based off of a stage and that we're kind of talking about how it had that kind of obvious kind of stage presence. By the end of the movie, I'd forgotten that it was based on a stage, and I it took this podcast to remind me that there were really only four people in this entire movie. Like I didn't think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't. It wasn't apparent to me that there were only four actors in this entire film. And that's pretty impressive for as far as a you know a modern day film where you have twenty or thirty people running around. Yeah, they're and they're very dynamic. <laughs> they keep your attention, for better or worse. Well, they keep most of our attention. <laughs> One of the negative things about a movie based on a stage play is they are always long. They're always two plus hours, and it just drags on. I think Rope was uh, was Rope two hours. No, Rope is only like an hour and ten minutes. Yeah. But yeah, I I guess I come to these adaptations watching it a little differently as well. Um, I feel like I'm expecting something different when I see something that's adapted from the stage. Um, you know, in, in the same way that, you know, you certainly don't expect big physical acting to be the, the centerpiece of adaptations, right? But you may, you you expect something more from the dialogue, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. You would hope that a stage play would be all dialogue. <laughs> right, yeah. I, I, you know, I, yeah. Um, yeah. Except for the ghost scene of Fiddler on the Roof. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we, we've, we've kind of naturally transitioned in, into talking about the movie as a whole. Is there anything else we want to cover in that regard before we talk about miscellaneous stuff about the movie? This is just a fun little recall, but I hands down my favorite portion of this film is where they're discussing Nick being a flop and <laughs> is he a houseboy or what was the other option a stud a stud that's right and like first she's like you're a flop Nick you can't do anything right and he's like I'm not a flop <laughs> and then he's being pelted with flowers <laughs> and then he's like well is he a houseboy or or a stud and she like begrudgingly is like he's a stud and Nick's like I told you <laughs> I was like, wait, so did Nick do well or not? I'm glad these are the questions this movie left you with, Shane. Was Nick a flop or not? I don't think anything's up to Martha's standards. True. I don't think anything's up to Shane's standards. I feel like, no, nothing. He didn't have a big enough fish. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. Uh, Do we have anything else about this this movie as a whole? I have nothing. 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure they went through 10 bottles of alcohol. Uh, and Honey ripped the label off of some of them. Which... She's, a ri- <laughs> she's a label ripper. George, a label ripper. George just took in stride, I guess. Um, <laughs> so, with that said, there's kind of a lot to talk about as far as how this movie did because there's oh yeah there's some interesting stuff in here so just to start out uh this was a financially successful movie it's not like it's a a blowout or anything but it made like 30 almost 34 million on a seven and a half million dollar budget so definitely good good lord but as we start getting into accolades this is one of only two films to be nominated in every single category at the academy awards wow yeah and it won several. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor won an Oscar for Best Actress, playing Martha, of course. And Sandy Dennis won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress, playing Very Honey. well deserved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, as June mentioned, Best Costume Design was won by this movie, as well as Best Cinematography and Best Art Direction. And interestingly, in another comparison with Sleuth, this is one of the few films that had its entire credited cast nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> this is a little more impressive than Sleuth doing it. I mean, they only had to get two people up, but... They doubled the number they required to number. fit that bill. <laughs> it, it did do it first. Um, I think the only other film that did it was a one-man film. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that, that's just definitely something interesting. I will say, unlike the last movie we watched, which made me want to burn the Oscars to the ground, this one, I actually am not upset with any of them. When he, like, with how many Oscars it won, even though I'm not a total fan of it, I can see why. Like, obviously, I could see why Elizabeth Taylor won Best Actress and Supporting Actress and Cinematography. I don't know what it went up against, but I'm not angry. So just to touch in on that, the uh, the big movie that beat it out in most of those categories was, interestingly, also an adaptation of a play, A Man for All Seasons, yeah. uh, which won Best Picture, Best Director, uh, Best Actor, and Best Screenplay. And then there were, you know, a handful of others. Um, of course, this didn't get nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, or we wouldn't be talking about it, or Best Documentary Feature, or Shane would have slept through it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was nominated for essentially everything. So we reach now the point in our podcast where we rank this movie ourselves. This is movie number 19 that we're ranking. This is going to be an interesting one, I think. Where do you all rank this movie in our list? Shane, where do you put it? I'm going to put this below below Annie Hall, but above the last picture show. Uh, at 18? So I think that's 18, yeah. <laughs> Second to last, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I, I really okay. just, I don't like this movie. Of the three scenes he remembers. Yeah, he doesn't I hated like them. him. It was a flop. Mike, where do you put this? This movie is going to go between um, The Nightmare Before Christmas Christmas and Rosemary's Baby for me. So that's number 13. Hmm. Interesting. June, where do you put it? I'm going to throw this one at number 14 uh, between The Straight Story and The Killing. 
I, I, I don't want to sit through a movie where everybody's just bickering at each other. And despite all of the stuff we talked about, it's almost like between the acting and cinematography and all that shit, uh, it's like you walk up to a Ferrari and then you pop the hood and it's like a engine from a Hyundai Elantra. I thought you said you had no more similes. You watch your fucking tone about the Hyundai Elantra. <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it was just kind of a mediocre overall thing that was pummeled with just brilliance around it, if you will. So... Mm. In contrast to that, I look at this one like Rope, where Rope was incredibly technically competent, but a little structurally hollow as far as the story goes. And I feel like this was the opposite, where it was really just... uh, it, It succeeded where Rope failed in having a compelling and interesting story and dynamic. So I'm going to put this... Just ahead of Rope at number eight. Wow. So, with uh, you thought this you thought this was better than Rope. I do think this was better than Rope. Mm. Interesting. Okay. The looking at my list, what I would say is, I don't know if Sin City should be higher or lower, but it shouldn't be where it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to rethink some thoughts on Sin City. I just like how like the first two are all the same for all of us except Mike. Mike's list is like a shotgun. but <laughs> And then it's all a jumble in the middle, and then the last two are pretty much the same for all of us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, final verdict, do you recommend watching this movie, June? Nah. Shane? Fuck no. Mike? No. And despite my ranking, no. <laughs> We're not afraid of you, Virginia Woolf. <laughs> I mean, I will caveat that this was a movie where I was kind of on the fence of the recommendation. It wasn't like a resounding no like The Last Picture Show. Oh, no. I You should never even hear about The Last Picture Show. Yeah, this one, I mean, I say no. There is a lot of merit to it, but it, I would just struggle to recommend it to a random person off the street, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know what you're supposed to pull from this movie. Yeah, fuck if I know. Um, so, uh, with the rankings and recommendation of Virginia Woolf, or Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, we don't really cover literature here, uh, in the books, that's it for today. Next week, we'll be talking about Rio Bravo, which, if I'm not mistaken, is our first Western. I'm excited so for excited. that. Yeah, this will be interesting. All right, thanks, everyone. Catch you next week with horses and revolvers in a river. Well, howdy, pilgrim. <laughs>